0: Easy. I got all the time in the world now. Hey, uh, we're trying something a little bit different on Wednesday night, so we're going to be finishing up, barring the preacher forgetting what time church gets over. Uh, We'll be wrapping up at 8 o'clock for a while to see if we can pull that off. So uh, the good news is... We're still going to cover all the scripture that we're planning on covering. Hopefully. If it doesn't work, then it'll be a one-week experiment, and we'll be back to 8.30. So, you guys get a bonus if I finish by 8 o'clock. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Psalms 79. And we're going to continue working our way through the Psalms. We've got a couple of exciting Psalms to take a look at uh, tonight as we continue. As we begin with the 79th psalm we're starting with a, a psalm of lament i would say the majority of the psalms of asaph are psalms of lament asaph served the lord during a particularly difficult time of life okay so asaph is is a worship leader serving the lord during the collapse during the fall of uh, jerusalem so it's like being the worship leader in the worst time of your history, the history of your nation ever. And so a lot of his psalms are psalms of lament. Psalms, you know, crying out to God, things are, are really difficult and really hard. And whenever we have a psalm of lament, there's a, there's a journey that the lament takes. A lot of times when I have an opportunity to counsel with people, especially people who are going through hard times, I'll encourage them to write a psalm. What I mean is I want them to to follow a a pattern. So the pattern is, first I want you to begin your psalm just laying out your complaint, whatever the the problem is. Here's my problem. The second part of the psalm, I encourage people now, not in association with the problem, I want you now to focus your eyes on the Lord. And I want you to write every good thing you can think of about God. And then after they've done the complaint, and after they've turned their eyes to the Lord, then I tell them the third part, I just want you to let the psalm naturally go to to its end. And when you look at the laments, that's how the laments go. The laments are, here's the problem, and our eyes are focused where? On a problem. When our eyes get focused on a problem, what happens? It gets big, right? The more, what we're, What we're looking at, what we're staring at, becomes bigger in our minds bigger in our hearts but when we take our eyes off of that we put our eyes on how big God is it helps get perspective so the the problem gets smaller and God gets bigger you understand what I'm saying so as we look at the psalm especially the lament psalms we want to to look to see that we can see that going on so as we look at psalm 79 psalm of asaph a lament psalm He says, oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. The funny thing is, God said that would happen. When it says the nations have come into your inheritance, the word is the goyim. The goyim have come. Now, if you know anything about the word goyim, it means Gentile. The Gentiles have come into your inheritance. God, this is just a relation, this is a thing. Here's the deal, God. It's you and us. We, the nation of Israel... And you, and, and, and it's those people out there. And we don't want those people out there really crowding in with us in here. So the complaint begins, look, the Gentiles are here. The nation's gone. The temple's destroyed. The people are going into slavery. That's rugged days. Jeremiah 29, 11, right? We've talked about it a number of times. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Familiar with the verse? Thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. That's written same time as this psalm. Same time as this. So, but he's saying the Gentiles, the nations, they've come. They're here in your inheritance, in the promised land. In the promised land. He goes on, your holy temple they have defiled. Now how did they defile the holy temple? Same way the Romans did. How did the Romans defile the holy temple? Tore it down. What did Jesus say? He said, they will not leave one stone upon another. When we go to Israel next November, we're going to stand in a place called the Teropian Valley. And in the Teropian Valley, what you'll see is these big stones, the building stones of the temple from the time of Christ, tumbled into a valley and laying in a heap, piled up. Uh, sometimes you're able to walk in through them. So you're walking through the stones that are the exact picture of what Jesus said. They won't leave one stone upon another. They're going to tear it all down. They're going to knock it all off. And here it is. And so you can walk through the Teropian Valley and you can see them right there. The, the road that people used to walk on is cracked because of the weight of the boulders, the rocks, the, the cut out stones that have fallen down. I'm talking big stones, not like blocks like we see today. Big Like the size of trucks. Well, how did they tip all those things over? Well, you'd be amazed how uh, a Roman soldier is willing to get something tipped over to get the gold under it. Right? Josephus tells us that an errant arrow went into the temple after the time of Christ, caught the temple on fire, the gold melted, got between the stones, they turned all the stones over so they could get the gold. Well, That temple, Herod's temple, we're talking about, that's not the same temple they're talking about. They're talking about Solomon's temple. Whatever Herod's temple was, Solomon's temple was thousands of times greater. More gold, more silver. So, when that gets torn down, when it gets destroyed, same way. Utter desolation, the hilltop. Is made flat again. And so Asaph says your holy temple. It's been defiled. He calls it his holy temple. I just want you to know that the prophets. Ezekiel laid out for us. That God didn't call the temple his temple. In Ezekiel. There's a a story. About a child that's going to be born. And they call that child Ichabod. You guys heard of the Ichabod. The headless horseman Ichabod Crane. Ichabod means what? The glory has departed. What is it that Ezekiel saw? The glory of the Lord come up from between the cherubim, float up over the, the eastern gate, and, and out into oblivion, really, to, it left. What, the picture is that the glory of God, God's presence, is not there. Why? Because the people have turned their back on God. They're not, they don't want to have nothing to do with God. They're not, they're not wanting that relationship. Their world is not God-centered anymore. So they they pushed God out, so God left. So when he says, your temple's been defiled, to me, God in heaven is saying, I'm not there. That's not my temple. Later on, I want you to look forward to the future. That temple stayed empty until uh, April 6, 32 AD. And on April 6, 32 AD, or the 10th of Nisan, someone came walking down the The uh, Mount of Olives into the the Eastern Gate up onto the Temple Mount. And as he got onto the Temple Mount, he cleansed the Temple. And that's the next time the glory of God was present on the Temple Mount. And you remember Jesus said what? My house shall be house of prayer, right? He does it twice. The beginning of his ministry and then toward the end of his ministry on the 10th of Nisan. When he leaves, three days later, the night before, the night he goes, he's going to go to Gethsemane, the crucifixion's coming the, the following morning. As Jesus walks out, what does he say? See, your house is left to you desolate. The prophets prophesied God left, but one day his spirit's going to come back. And he's going to have zeal. And that's exactly what the scripture writes when Jesus came in. So we have the departure of the glory of God, the mourning of the people of Israel for where are you God? But really, long before God left the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel left God. And so Asaph begins with his trouble, okay? The temple's defiled, they have laid Jerusalem in heaps. I don't remember the number. It's a lot. The city of Jerusalem has been destroyed and rebuilt upon the rubble. So many times when you visit Jerusalem today, there's a tour, part of the tour goes through the rabbinical tunnels. The rabbinical tunnels, literally, when they built Jerusalem, when they laid the foundation, they'd build arches and lay like a foundation across those arches and build the city up. And then that city get knocked down and they'd build arches. Well, you can still dig down in and find those tunnels. They're tunnels now, they weren't tunnels back then. But you can find those tunnels, those arches that go back beyond the time of Christ. As many times as it's been destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt. So they're saying, look, Jerusalem is, is ruined. Now, think about Asaph. Everything's gone. The temple's destroyed. The, the Gentiles have control. In that case, in their case, it's Babylon. The Gentiles have control. Uh, he's laying out the problem. Here's the problem. Here's why his heart is heavy. And look where he goes in verse 2. The dead bodies of your servants, they've given us as food to the birds of heaven, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. He's everywhere he looks. I just want you to get the picture because it, it, it's not pretty. He's looking around the city. The city's down. The temple's destroyed. The Gentiles are running around. And everywhere he looks, there are dead And they're not burying the dead. They just leave them out. Food for the birds. Food for the birds. And so he's he's laying out this burden on his heart. The burden on his heart, really, as he's looking, listen, the, the prophets had been telling the nation for years, if you stay down this road, it ends in destruction. It's really not any different than what the church has been saying in this nation for years. If we stay on this road, destruction's coming. The judgment, we're already, just don't wait for judgment. We're already under judgment. The Bible tells us that part of the judgment is the darkness of a nation, a nation's leadership, and the nation turning their back on the Lord and heading in the opposite direction. That's part of the judgment. <coughs> We're headed in the same path that all many, 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 many people have gone before, and it's a path that ultimately leads to our own destruction, right because we've we have pushed God out any different than Jerusalem did have we pushed god we've probably done it worse. we pushed God out, we pushed God out of of schools, we pushed God out of government, we pushed God out of our individual and personal lives. We don't want him around anymore. We're tearing down Ten Commandment statues and putting other crazy things up. You know, I I think that's actually true, which kind of blows my mind. But I'm I'm holding out for somehow it's bogus. But but I think it's actually true. So, but all that stuff going on in our nation, really happening. We're we're on a road to destruction. Woe, Isaiah said, woe to you who calls evil good and good evil who give bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter the idea that turning away from the truth and righteousness and turning to the lie and scripture talks about what occurs when that takes place because we've put away just like god telling the nation of israel see i have set before you life and death and what did god ask them to do choose life choose life so we find ourselves in 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 the midst of rebellion similar to what's going on here look at verse three their blood they have shed like water all around jerusalem i just want you to picture like how wet it is when it rains literally the picture that asaph is painting is bloods everywhere it's horrific what he's looking at what he's seeing in the destruction of a city and there was no one to bury them. That's a great reproach. He says in verse 4, We have become a reproach to our neighbors and a scorn and derision to those who are around us. We have become, and, and really this is part of the problem. With, he's laying out, remember his complaint. The city is destroyed. People are killed. Blood is everywhere. Man, I, I can't believe how crazy. In fact... People look at us like we're a reproach. They look at us like we have no value. They look at us like we don't matter. Now hold your finger there and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, if you would. You're going to go to the right. All the way to the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Keep going. We're going to go past uh, Romans and we're going to hit first. Corinthians, and we're going to First Corinthians chapter four, and I just want you to see what, as we as we come to a a, a place in Christ, <coughs> the difference of the attitude. Here we have an attitude that says, "When we're we're scorned, we're a derision to all these people who look at us, we're a reproach to our neighbors." But this is what Paul has to say in First Corinthians chapter four. We'll pick it up in about verse eleven. He says, "To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst." and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless and we labor working with our own hands being reviled or hated we bless being persecuted we endure being defamed <clears throat> we entreat we have been made like the filth of the world the offscouring of all things until now he's saying this is how the world views us now i just want you to <clears throat> make full picture this is how the people in Jerusalem felt like the world saw them at the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, I ask you, how does the world see Christians today? Is that somehow different than that? Is it <clears throat> they, they, they see us as righteous and good? and No, they don't. Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If the world hates me, what will it do to you? Will hate you, but what does Paul say? Paul says we don't we don't complain about the fact that the world hates us, and we don't moan and groan. What does Paul say we do? He says we we endure persecution. He says though they use us, they spitefully use us, they look down on us, it doesn't stop us. We still have a job to do, a role, and ultimately, so does Asaph and the people. Of Jerusalem in the same way. They still have a role to play. So look what he says in verse 5. How long, Lord? You ever ask that question? So he's looking at all this stuff. He says, How long? What What is it he wants to know? Really, what we all want to know when we're in times of persecution, struggle, tribulation, life is hard, we're in a bad patch, whatever the deal is, he wants to know the same thing we want to know. Tell me. That this is only temporary. It's not forever. How long, O oh Lord? God gave Daniel the answer. Do you know what the answer was? Seventy years. Seventy years. That's how long. This particular time that that the trial that they were in was gonna last. It's not forever, but seventy years. That's a long time, right? In fact, that's a lifetime. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like a fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you. One of the big struggles for the nation of Israel was to recognize that they were being judged by a nation that didn't even like God. They, They could care less about God. Why are you using a pagan nation to judge us? Well, the easy answer for that question is because he's God. He's king. He's sovereign. He does always what's best and what's good. Now, they're crying out for judgment to fall upon the the Gentiles. Look, God still holds the Gentile nation. In fact, through the prophets, God provides a a judgment on Babylon. Why? Because of the things Babylon did. God sent them to be his hand of retribution on the people, but he holds Babylon responsible for what they did. He holds them responsible for for the choices that they made and the way that they treated his people. So he will pour out, this wrath upon the people and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. Why? Because they had devoured Jacob. They were trying to wipe out God's people and they laid waste to his dwelling place. Now verse 7 is the end of his complaint. So you see how the complaint goes. Man, that's really rugged. Everywhere I look, death, destruction. The cities destroyed, blood, death, everywhere. God, he just wish you'd get those people. Get those people. Have we ever gone through that? Ever feel that way? I mean, I can watch the news and see people act that way all day. It's different names, different nations, different issues, but the same attitude most of the time. So, so here's the struggle. God, get them. God, you know, this isn't right. What's going on? And, and I agree, it's not right. And ultimately, God will take care of those things. But then, his heart begins to turn. Verse 8, he starts to cry out for forgiveness. Why? Because they left God. God's still there. What is it that God wants from all men everywhere, all the time? Repentance. Repentance. You guys remember happy days? There, y'all are at least as old as me. Oh, I'm sorry, that was bad. You all are old enough to remember happy days. You remember when when Fonzie did something wrong? What was the hardest thing in the world for him to say? I'm Sue. Remember how he would do that? He could never say, "I'm sorry, I was wrong, forgive me." That's a human condition. But it's one that we need to, as believers, learn to overcome. What is it that God wants from us? Not to live perfectly. What is it God wants from us? Not perfect performance and fulfilling all of his desires for it. What is it God wants from us? Is an attitude of repentance. An attitude of repentance is an attitude of submission. Right? A willingness to say, I'm sorry, forgive me. I'm sorry, forgive me. And that's where Asaph goes. He goes, look, I'm, I'm sorry, Lord. He's, he's saying, do not remember our former iniquities against us. Do not, do not remember former iniquities against us. Forgive. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us, for we have been brought very low. So it's like the circumstances, he's saying, these circumstances that I've been in have brought me to my knees. And he's asking God, don't remember our sins, don't remember our failure, have mercy. Have mercy. Well, look, we all want to come to God on the basis of mercy and grace. You do not want to come to God asking him for justice. You won't like it. You want grace, you want mercy, you want compassion. And what is it that God asks of us if that's our desire of him? Yeah, he wants us to spread that around, right? So he says, look, don't come to me asking for grace and mercy so that you can go get justice on somebody else. What's he asked for? Come to me asking for grace and mercy so that you can be graceful and merciful to others. Right? And that's supposed to be, we reflect what we're given, that we are in the image of God, and as God pours out his grace and mercy on us, what should flow from us? Grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. Willingness to forgive and be forgiven. So what's he saying in verse 9? Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name, and deliver us and provide atonement for our sins for your name's sake. So now pleading for God's help. Lord, God, help us. We're not going to make it without you. That's, That's what God was looking for. The lament begins with the complaint and the struggle. And here's all the problem, but what's God looking for? The heart that says, help us. Be our strength through this time. Do you know what God told the people who were going into captivity? He said, go and live. You know, before the nation was destroyed, three, maybe four times, but certainly three times Babylon came against Jerusalem. The first time was peaceful. They conquer him. There's no battle. Jeremiah's telling the people, don't fight. This is God's judgment. God says, go into Babylon and live. Build homes. Live your life. You're going to be there for 70 years, and then God will bring you back. But don't fight against what God's doing. And what did they do? They fought, and they fought, and they fought. And now Asaph is looking around, and the city's destroyed, and every blood everywhere, and bodies everywhere. And Jeremiah the weeping prophet weeps over the people. How long have I told you stop? Don't fight. But they wanted to fight. They wanted their way. I've shared with Kathy. I've I've shared with the church. You know the the for us the ordeal <coughs> of, of trying to buy a house and get the house and. Weird, crazy things have happened and, you know, whatever. I've, I told Kathy, I feel like Balaam. I keep trying to push. I'm on my donkey and I'm kicking it. Go! How can this not work out? I'm, I'm just trying to give people money. That should be easy, right? I have money. I'm trying to give it to you so I can buy a house. And everybody says, no, I don't like your money. What do you mean you don't like my money? It's the same color as everybody else, and I'm kicking that donkey. And finally, I just realized, I don't want to be Balaam. I don't know why the donkey stopped. It shouldn't have stopped. The road looks open, but the donkey stopped. And I know what happened with Balaam, right? Kicked the donkey, beat the donkey, yelled the donkey, and only to find out there's an angel there. And the angel saying, look, if the donkey kept coming, I was going to take you out. I'll stop when the donkey stops and look around and say, you know, maybe the Lord wants this to happen a different way, right? Maybe there's a, a different place, a different way that it's supposed to come together. So I'm just going to back up and wait for God, right? Uh, And that's what God was doing with the nation of Israel. Look, I'm going to, I'm going to deal with you and we're going to deal with some of these things. And they're, they're, they're bad things, but I don't want you to die. But the people just kept pushing, kept pushing, kept pushing. Until just like God said, they were laying in the street dead. Didn't have to. Do you ever get bullheaded like that? God says, look, sometimes we just have to receive what God's doing. And allow God to do his thing. So he says, help out. Atone for our sins. Why should the nation say, where is God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight, avenging the blood of your servants, (coughs) which has been said. Why should the nation say, where? Every time a nation conquered another nation, they would always say, your God was too weak to stop us. But God's point was, no, what I want you to do is live and rejoice, even though you're going into slavery, and let them see me through you. Is that any different than what he asked in our relationship with Christ today? Is it it God wanting us to to bear the sword? No, I'm not not arguing that, that it's okay to take a sword with you. Knock yourself out. Take a sword with you. Does God call us to bear the sword? Probably there are times, right? But what are the things that Jesus said? Love those who do what? Hate you. Do good to those who despitefully use you. Whoa. Kind of sounds like, I want you to go there, and I want you to live, and I want you to be the light, and I want you to shine forth the love of Christ, and the power of Christ working in your life, even though, (coughs) maybe things don't make the kind of sense you'd like them to make. He goes on and says, Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you according to, to the greatness of your power and preserve those who are appointed to die. Lord, watch over us, keep us. But then look, in 12 and 13, you can see the lament begin to turn. He's asked for forgiveness. His, His eyes are coming to the Lord. He says, return to our neighbors sevenfold into the bosom, their reproach with which they have reproached you, O God. So we, your people and the sheep of your pasture will give thanks forever. And we will show forth your praise to all generations. Look, he still wants God to to judge the people who are hurting them, And as I said, God will. But whose timing is that? That's God's, right? That's God's timing. The choice to say, we will follow you. You're the shepherd, we're the sheep. We want what you have for us. We want, we are here, being in a position or a place of submission. Now as we turn from Psalm 79, now we come to Psalm 80. A little bit different psalm, and it's going to give us a a little bit different picture. So look what he says, still a psalm of Asaph. So we're still dealing with a similar time frame. (coughs) He says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. Now it's a picture, remember I told you, same time frame, the glory of God had departed, the temple's empty, the people are in a place of idolatry, their hearts are turned from God. What is it that Asaph's asking? God, I want to see your glory shine between the cherubim. What's that a picture of? Where were two cherubim where God dwelt in the middle? What's that a picture of? The Ark of the Covenant, right? Ark of the Covenant, you had two cherubim, where the where the blood of the sacrifice was placed, right? And God said to the people, I will meet you where? Between the cherubim. On the Ark of the Covenant. Between the cherubim. In the tabernacle, in the temple. Where else is that a picture? You guys remember all the way back to creation? In creation when Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden so that they could not eat of the, the tree of life. They're driven out of the garden. And what did God put at the entrance of the garden? Cherubim. With a flaming sword, right? To bar their their opportunity to come back. So if the the Old Testament tells us that God met the people between the cherubim, I've always had this question. Cain and Abel brought an offering to God. Where did they bring it? Where Well, if it fulfilled, if the picture is fulfilled like we see throughout Scripture, he would have met him between the cherubim, just like he did in the Ark of the Covenant. Who taught him about sacrifice? Well, God did, right? When Adam and Eve fell, who made the skins that Adam and Eve wore? The Bible says God did. How do you get skins? Yes, God could just speak it, and there it would be. But I believe there was a sacrifice for their sins, And God said, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. And this is a picture of what Messiah will do one day. The fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3.16. So he's laying all those things out. So Asaph is saying, I want to see your glory between the cherubim. We want your presence with us again. And there's three things he's really going to ask for out of this psalm. The first one comes up in verse 3. Let's look at verse 2. Before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, stir up your strength... Come and save us. We need you. They're calling for the presence of God, right? Here's the first part. Restore us, O oh God. So what are they looking for? Restoration. We want, we need you to restore us again. We need you to bring us back from the brink. Restore us, O oh God. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. O oh Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the, the prayer of your people? For you have fed them with the bread of tears, and you have given them tears to drink in great measure. You have made us to strive uh, to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Same picture, right? Where We are on the trail of tears. That's what I call it. A lot of times, guys, when we are walking with God, God's calling us and directing us in ministry or in our lives. As we're just living our lives before God, and we're on that walk with Christ. How many of us know that there are times, multiple times, that we are required to walk a trail of tears? Where we go through hard times. The Lord could have took the children of Israel when they left Egypt, and He could have brought them in exactly a straight line to Mount Sinai. Wouldn't have took them very long to get there. He could have given them the law, and then He could have took them in a straight line to Kadesh Barnea, which is the entrance into the Promised Land. But how did God do it? It took a year He wound them around on the way to Mount Sinai. Why? Because that trail was necessary for them to be in the right place to receive the law. And then he winds them around the Kadesh Barnea. Because that trail was necessary to give them the opportunity to make the choice necessary to enter the promised land or not. And they didn't enter the promised land. What did they do? Wander around in the wilderness. For what? Waiting for a generation to die. Well, let's not look at it negatively. The generation's going to die. What else is happening when that generation dies? A generation's being raised up. The ones who are unwilling to go are dying. Yep, they're dying. But what else is happening? Ones that are ready to go are being raised up. A generation is being raised up to go and conquer. To be raised up and enter in. To the promised land. And that trail. Was full of funerals. And bodies. And pain. And tears. But what does the Bible tell us in Romans 8.28? How many things? All things work together for good. To those who are the called. According to God's purposes. Those who love him and are the called. Look God. Does. Does. This incredible thing, in and through and by. So so we see God moving and working, and that's what he's talking about here. Look, you've given us tears. It's been difficult. It's been hard. So again, he asks in verse 7, Restore us, O God, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. And what's he asking? Restore us. How are we restored? By your presence. By your presence. So we see this desire for restoration and the presence of God. For you have brought a vine out of Egypt... That's a picture of the vineyard, right? You have cast out the nations and planted it. The promised land. This is a picture of God planting the vineyard. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root. And it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. So it's the establishment of the nation of Israel pictured as a vine. If you remember, we talked about Isaiah 5, you're welcome to take a look there. I'm just going to share with you a first couple of verses out of Isaiah chapter 5, but here's what it says. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. That was the nation of Israel. The vineyard that they're just now talking about in Psalm 80 that God planted. He said... My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst. He made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes. God's establishment of the nation. That's what he's talking about here in Psalm 80. He says, she sent out her bough. She grew. She becomes this big vine. But what was the problem? What is it that God expected in Isaiah 5? To come from the nation of Israel. Good grapes, right? He says, I expected her to bring forth good grapes. What did she bring forth? Wild grapes, which is another term for bitter or sour grapes. Grapes not fit to be ate. Or not fit to be used to make wine. Grapes that couldn't be used for anything. She was not fruitful. He expected good things. He didn't get good things. And so as a result in Isaiah 5, Isaiah the prophet says, well then he's going to take down the hedge. He's going to remove protection. He's going to allow the wild animals to come in. He's going to allow the nations to come and pick its fruit. God's hand of protection is going to come off. So that the people will enter into a place of repentance and call for God's presence. Now we come back to Psalm 80. Look what it says. Verse 12 why have you broken down her hedges so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit the boar the wild animal out of the woods uproots it and the wild beast of the field devours it so they recognize that what has happened the presence of god has left god's protection is off of us so the call that god would restore them as a people and then the second part not only are they looking for restoration look what they say in verse fourteen Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see, and visit the vine. What are they asking for? God's presence. They want restoration, and they want God's presence. We want you back. Ah, we turned our our back on you. We turned away from you. We didn't want you, but we want you back. We want you in our presence. We want you again. We want to be restored. We want to see the nation be who she's supposed to be. But in order for that to happen, we need you here. Do we need anything any different? If our nation's going to survive? If our nation's going to bear fruit? If our kids and our grandkids are going to have the kind of world they should have, what's necessary? God needs to be in it. God needs to be here. We don't need another Messiah. We have one. We need him here. We need God to be central. Now, if we want God to be central of our nation, what must happen first? He must be central in our lives. Aren't we in the nation? I think we keep looking outside for somebody else To do something, for something else to happen. And the reality is, we need revival. And revival doesn't happen out there, it happens in here. And it doesn't happen in here before it happens in here. you get it? We want God's presence. That's what the nation of Israel, that's what Asaph is crying out for. (coughs) Return and visit us. Now does it happen? Does God come to his vineyard? Absolutely He does. Remember Jesus told a, a parable about the vineyard? What did He say? The owner of the vineyard has sent prophets. He sent people to ask for the fruit. Remember Jesus' parable? He sent them and they killed them and they beat them. So what did the owner of the vineyard say? I will send who? My son. And so God sent Jesus. Did He come to the vineyard? Sure did. And the... The ones who were working the vineyard, what did they do? They killed him. They killed him and, and wrought for you and I eternal salvation. Same picture is being laid out for us here. It says in verse 15, And the vineyard which your right hand has planted, and the branch that, that you made strong for yourself, it's being burned with fire and it's cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. The rebuke, the the, the picture, the rebuke of your countenance. The turning of your face. That's almost literally what's being said. So the the nation, he's saying, God, the nation is departing because you have turned your face. You turned away. Hand of protection lifted off. We need you. We need you. We can't make it without you. We need you. That's what the psalm says. It's calling out for. So he says, Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the Son of Man, whom you made strong for yourself. (coughs) And what's the third thing? And we will not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. So he's recognizing we're dead. We're dead. Without you, we have no life. So we... We want to be restored. And in order to be restored, we need your presence. And when your presence comes, we need you to breathe life into us again. Revive us again. The the psalmist calling out for God not only to restore, but to return his presence and to revive. And we will call upon your name. What did Solomon say when he dedicated the temple? The Lord laying out prophetically that the nation of Israel was going to turn their back on them one day and they were going to end up in captivity. He said, if my people who are called by my name will do what? Humble themselves and pray. Turn from their sins and cleanse their wicked way. Then I will hear their prayers from heaven. And what will he do? I will come and I will forgive them their sins. And I will heal the land. Now that's a direct promise for the nation of Israel. But the Bible tells that all the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. Can we make application? Can we say that needs to be our heart? Asking that God would Would restore, that God would return, that God would revive. Is there any other hope for us than the hope that's being declared in this psalm that we would have the presence of God? So he closes in verse 19 Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, cause your face to shine, and we will be saved. We want the glory of God between the cherubim. We want the glory of God to shine between the cherubim. Remember I told you the cherubim was an example of being in the Ark of the Covenant. Two cherubim was an example of the the garden, right? The cherubim placed at the gate of the garden to guard it so that Adam and Eve couldn't return back in to get to the tree of life and and be stuck in a lost state. Where else do we see the picture of the cherubim? Well, those cherubim dwelt in the temple. Where's the temple today? But we have the the, the, the picture, God's temple in heaven, but where else? What does, what does the scripture say? Do you not know that you are the temple of God? So where's the holy of holies? Wherein the glory of God needs to shine? It's right inside of us. So when we're asking God, I want you to come. We want you between the cherubim. We want you to, to radiate your glory. Where are we asking for that to come from? within us, shining forth from us. How are we able to be the witness that God wants us to be? We have to be the men and women God asks us to be. And how can we be that without the glory of God shining in our life? So what do we need personally? We need Him to restore us. We need Him to return, to shine, to be there, to to shine forth from our lives. We need him to revive us again. Or, you can keep hoping there's a a political guy out there somewhere who's going to turn it all around. I think there is a political guy out there who's going to look like he's going to turn it all around, but I don't think that's the Messiah we want. I think that's different. The Messiah we want came. So, the hope that we have that that our world can change. That's in this room. We want our community change. It's in our room. And it's not done by running around with pitchforks. It's done by allowing the glory of God to shine forth in our life. It's done by, by enduring, as Paul said. Even though everybody hates us. Who cares? God loves you. What else do you need? Let the light of Christ shine. And watch God do things. That's how things change. If we want something different in our body, we're the change. If we want something different in our community, in our neighborhood, in our our state, we're the change. Stop looking for it to come from somebody else. And recognize that maybe you're the person to institute that change. Just like Esther was told, for such a time as this. This is your time to shine, not somebody else's. This is your time to make a difference, not somebody else's. It's your time, it's my time, it's our time to take it back. That's what the nation of Israel was trying to do. And I think that's what God wants us to do for our time. Amen? Look, just look how early it's crazy. Why don't you guys stand with me let's pray.